Morning, church family. Welcome to our first service here, 845 at Desert Hills. We're excited to get in week number two of our series, Forged in the Fire. If you have your Bibles, take them, your tablets, your iPads, whatever you have, your iPhones, and turn them to your Android phone. I don't want to leave you out, Android people. Uh, Turn them to Job chapter 1, and we're going to start looking at chapter 1 this morning. We'll make our way. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job, and so one of the hardest things for me to do, I never have a problem getting information. My problem is uh, getting enough information so I can fit it in a 40-minute time window. And so we're going to look at the life of Job this morning and exposit the life of Job, and we're going to look at the fire of loss. But before we get into the message this morning, I want to thank you, everyone who's participated in the Open House Outreach, everyone who's already invited somebody to come to our Open House services two weeks from today, everyone that has given towards our Open House event, thank you for participating I want to encourage you to continue to invite people. Um, We are hoping that in this uh, next couple week period between the 16th, the 23rd, and the 30th, we'll have between 70 and 80 different families, maybe 100 different families that would come through the doors for the first time. And uh, we're praying that those that aren't saved would come to the knowledge of the truth. Those that are saved and, and new to the area and just need a church home would link up with us as we understand The harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. And as we make roads into harvesting the fields that God has already prepared. So if you pray with us, continue to pray, continue to give. I know in these times with uh, recession hanging over our head, eggs twice as much as they were a year ago, uh, gas twice as much as it was, and so on. I know the tendency would be for all of us, even our church, to kind of grip everything we have a little tighter. But there are people that need Jesus, amen? Amen. And uh, the lost need to be reached, people need to be discipled, and we're going to make our best pass at seeing that comes to pass. Now, let me ask you this morning, have you ever had a bad day? Anybody? You ever had a bad day? A day where it seems like nothing goes right at all? Now, when I was a kid and when my daughters were growing up, there was a children's book called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Familiar with it? Remember that one? About a boy who just kept having bad things happen to him. Now, um, I think we got the picture of the, the jacket here up here somewhere. Now, Alexander narrates the story of having a terrible, horrible, no very good, bad day. From the moment Alexander wakes up, he noticed the bubble gum that was in his mouth when he fell asleep has now got stuck in his hair. Then when he gets out of bed, he trips over his skateboard. In the bathroom, he accidentally drops his favorite sweater into the sink while the water was on. At breakfast, his brothers Anthony and Nick find prizes in their breakfast cereal boxes, but Alexander only finds cereal in his box and no prize at all. Alexander resolves that he's going to move away to Australia. In the carpool on the way to school, Alexander has to sit in the middle seat between two big kids in the back seat. He complains about how uncomfortable he is and that he'll get car sick unless he sits by the window and no one listens. At school, his teacher, Mrs. Dickens, disqualifies Alexander's picture of an invisible castle, which is really just a blank sheet of paper, preferring Paul's picture of a sailboat. 
At singing time, she criticizes Alexander for singing too loud. And at counting time, she mentions that Alexander has skipped the number 16 when the class counted from 1 to 20. After being told, he retorts uh, that 16 doesn't matter anyways, and he laments at how bad the day continues to be. At recess, Paul tells him he's no longer his best friend and will only play with him occasionally now. Paul has decided to choose Philip as his first best friend and Alexander, uh, excuse me, Albert as his second best friend, which means Alexander is now the third best friend. Alexander's response is that he hopes Paul sits on a tack, and when he gets an ice cream comb, the ice cream will fall off and land somewhere in Australia. Then at lunchtime, all the boys show off their desserts except for Alexander. Respectively, there are two cupcakes for Philip's dessert, a chocolate bar with almonds for Albert, and Paul has a jelly roll with, with coconut sprinkles. But since Alexander's mother forgot to include one, there's no dessert with his lunch. Once again, Alexander laments that he's having a terrible, horrible, no very good, bad day. Now, you ever had a bad day? How about all these people? They all had bad days. How about you're driving to church, you're running late, and as you turn the corner, within a mile of the site of the building, the earth opens up because you've had some rain in the area and you feel like the sons of Korah right here. Talk about a bad day. Now, how about this one? You are a Marine and your drill sergeant has you and your troops in a field because you're receiving instructions on PT, and as you're sitting in the field, the sprinklers start to go off, but your drill sergeant just tells you to shut up and sit still, like this. <laughs> How about this? You're working in the paint department at Home Depot, and you're readying some paint in the shaker mixture machine, and you hear a strange noise, so you try to stop the machine, and as you do, this happens. <laughs> How about this one? You're on your way to your daughter's soccer game, and you are hungry, but it's hot, and you want something refreshing along the way. So you get the biggest smoothie you can get, you figure it'll last a whole of two hours when these games will take place. So you get the smoothie, you take your seat, you settle in for the games, and this happens. <laughs> How about this one? Let's just say something happened in the bathroom. Let's just say that. Uh, right here, I don't know what happened. Something happened in the bathroom. Now, you're asked at church to change the toner on the copier because it's run out, and let's just say they'll never ask you again. Let's see about this guy. <laughs> How about this one? You're in a hurry, you have to get some gas, you have to get to your next thing, and when you finally arrive at your destination, you realize that this has happened. <laughs> Can you identify this morning? Anybody? Can I get a witness? Hey, man, preacher, I've there, been there. Now, all of our lives can change in a moment. 
1996, while his mother was visiting and with his wife and four daughters in their van, Jerry Sitzer and his wife and family were hit by a drunk driver where his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter were killed within moments of being hit. Out of sorrow of heart, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, which has been a help to many people for the last 26 years. Now, if in your youngest child all at the same time and not be totally crushed for the rest of your life. How do you go on another day? How do you go on another week, another year, when you face such loss? How do we deal with the fire of loss? Now, this morning we see such a man who knew what it was to face loss. His name was Job. Job was a man who most people believe lived before or was a contemporary to the man we know in the Bible as Abraham. He lived in a place called Uz, which is near the ancient kingdom of Edom, just northeast of modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, Satan's great, greatest enemy outside of the triune Godhead is man. He hates man with a passion because man is created in the image of God. His job is to kill, to steal, and his job is to destroy. He had already helped to hasten man's demise with God bringing judgment upon the earth in a flood in Genesis chapter 6. And now here in Job, we see him back up to his old tricks. Now Job chapter 1 pictures Satan going through the earth to kill man's search and desire for God, to steal man's joy and purpose, and to destroy man through sin. Now Job 1 literally gives us a picture into the throne room of heaven and here is what the Bible tells us in Job 1 in verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now the sons of God here are angels. They're the descendants, the creations of God. Now these angels come to present themselves before God, and Satan, who is cast out of his position as the archangel in heaven, comes to present himself amongst the other angels. The Bible tells us, and the Lord says unto Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. In other words, Satan tells God he's been sowing mischief and looking for someone whom he cannot tempt. And the Lord says unto Satan, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and one that a shoes evil. So God tells Satan, I bet you cannot tempt. I bet you cannot sway. I bet you cannot entice Job. He's spiritually mature. He's upright. He lives in the awareness of God's presence and he flees that which is evil. Then Satan answers the Lord and he says, well, Job's got a reason, verse nine, that he fears you. You blessed him with all kinds of possessions and you put a hedge of protection about him and you take all of those things from him and he will curse you, verse 11, and go away from you. Now, at this point in his life, Job has seven sons and three daughters. Having children in this time made you very wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep. Imagine that, 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. 
He had 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, great lands, houses, and possessions. Now, Job was not only the most spiritual person in his time, but he was also the wealthiest person in his time. The Bible says in verse 3 of Job chapter 1, so that this man was the greatest of all the men in the east. And then Job faces tremendous loss. Now, we look at the losses Job faced, and we understand that God allowed his hand of protection to be removed from Job to prove Job's integrity to Satan, to the world, and even to us today. And in one fell swoop, Job loses all of his possessions. Notice what the Bible says, verse 14 and 15. Now, verse 14 and 15 tell us that he loses his 1,000 oxen that help him to carry heavy loads and help him to till the fields. He loses 500 donkeys along with the ranch hands that tended to them uh, by a group of ravaging bandits known as the Sabians, verse 14 and 15. In verse 16, Job loses his 7,000 sheep that were used for food, for clothing, along with the shepherds that helped to keep them. In verse 17, he loses his 3,000 camels that were used for milk. Imagine that, milk from a camel. <laughs> it was a big thing back then. They, he loses his 3,000 camels that are used for traveling and carrying goods in this dry and arid land along with the hands that cared for them in verse 17. Now, he's not left in total destitution because the Bible doesn't tell us that he loses his own house and his own currency that he has on him, but he's basically wiped out in less than a day, and then the unthinkable happens. He loses his children. You see that in verses 18 and 19. Now, one of the greatest fears any parent has is to lose their children before they lose their own life. Now, maybe Job had a premonition that his children would die, and that's why we see him in chapter 1 and verse 5 giving sacrifices on their behalf. He desperately loved his seven sons and his three daughters, but his greatest fear became his unending nightmare when the Bible says in verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another messenger and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I am the only one alone that is escaped to tell thee. Now in all of the losses, Job did not get bitter at God. He did not shake his fist up in the air at God and say, God, why did you do this to me? Not in this moment. Nor did he lose his composure, nor did he sin. In fact, in, the Bible says in chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, In all of this, Job sinned not, nor did he charge God foolishly. Now, Satan did not have his way with Job. And if all that Job already faced wasn't enough, Satan wanted more. The angels, again, are presenting themselves to God. And God asks Satan what he's been up to. And Satan responds that he's been looking for a good man, someone he can tempt and sway, but he says he already has control of the world. And God says, chapter 2, verse 4, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan answers the Lord and says, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man have will he give for his life. So God removes his hand of protection upon Job's life. And Job then loses his health. The Bible tells us that from the top of his head 
to the bottom of his feet, he's afflicted with some type of pox, boils all over his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He just lost most of everything that has been important to him, and now his health is gone. And then Job also lost, or at least he perceived the loss of his closeness to God. From the beginning of the trials all the way to chapter 38, while he's enduring immense financial strain, immense personal loss, God appears to ghost Job. He endures criticism from his wife. He endures criticism from his closest friends. And he begins to doubt himself. And God is seemingly nowhere to be found. We move from Job's losses to next, we see the criticisms that he faced. You know, if you never want to be criticized, don't do anything. Don't do anything, don't build anything, don't try anything. Why? Because the people that do, they're the ones that are criticized. If you start a business, somebody's going to criticize you. No matter how much happiness and joy and satisfaction you get from your accomplishment, somebody's going to say they don't like what you're doing. It always happens that way. We get a great service on a Sunday. Let's say we have a good number of people that show up. We get guests. Uh, it seems like God connects in the sermon and the music. And after it's all said and done, we get an email that says, I hate you. <laughs> well, I don't get them anymore. Somebody else gets them. So I probably <laughs> Now, he faced criticism through Satan. Satan didn't believe anyone could be truly loving and loyal towards God. Satan believed that the only reason Job was loyal was because Job had experienced the blessing of God and good health. And that's why Satan said in verse 9 of chapter 1, Doth Job fear God for not? There's a reason why he fears you. There's a reason why he serves you. There's a reason why he does what he does. If you take away everything that he has, he's going to curse you. But Job did not. Job also faced criticism from his wife. Job and Mrs. Job lost most of their earthly wealth. They lost their children. And then Job lost his health. And then notice Mrs. Job's response. Then said his wife unto him, Do you still retain your integrity? And then this is from her mouth. Think about this. Curse God and die. Literally. Why don't you just die? You're the reason why we're experiencing all of these problems. Job, why don't you just die? Can you imagine? It's no wonder in chapter 3 where we see Job wanting to die. And then... Later on in the book of Job, Job is criticized by his friends, he's criticized by his wife, he's criticized by Satan. Job starts believing the criticism. He's criticized in his own mind. Like Jeremiah, who we looked at last week, Job wished that he had never been born. For seven days after Job lost his health, he was silent. He didn't speak to his wife beyond his rebuke of her. He didn't speak to his friends that had come to join him and sit with him in his hour of difficulty. He didn't speak to anyone. And then when he speaks, he curses his birth. He didn't ask God to take him from the world necessarily. He wished God would have never let it begin to start with. 
We see that in Job chapter 3, verse 1. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day wherein I was born and the night wherein it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Let that be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. And then Job also faced criticism from his friends. From his friends. Now, instead of living the type of life exemplified by the principle found in Proverbs where it says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, Job's friends chose to criticize him. Job's friends during his deepest, darkest hour chose to believe that the reason why Job was experiencing problems was because Job had sin in his life. Now, we understand that God does allow judgment at times because of sin, but when he does, the person receiving the judgment will know it and won't need somebody else to tell them. Even God didn't believe the negativity about Job. But Job's three friends, Bildad and Zophar and Eliaphaz, will continue to be remembered as the guys who sang an off-tune song to a heavy heart. Now, here are Eliaphaz's words to Job. Job chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, I pray thee. I can see him standing all pompously and high and lifted up. Remember, I pray thee. Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. When my wife and I were in California starting the Mountain View Baptist Church in around 1996, 1997, we lived at a little place there off of Foothill Boulevard in Ramona, in these little apartments was the apartment, uh, that first one that said, uh, hey, we're, we no longer have a waiting list. You can reside here. And so we got the apartment. And so we were living hand to mouth for most of that first year or so. We were starting a church. We didn't have a, uh, we were young and we didn't have a lot and we were just dependent totally on God. And, and um, we would take the money that we would get for our rent and we'd go on the first day of the, uh, the month and we'd pay our rent cash or a check and we'd hand it right to the leasing person today uh, you do automatic deposits you do all these different things you didn't do that like in the mid 90s you know you still dealt with checks most people don't even have checks anymore but I went in one day and the leasing lady she wasn't in but her husband was there big old dude used to be a uh, a lineman for the Miami Dolphins had retired uh, after playing five years in professional football and he was there he's kind of a gruff guy and and uh, he asked me our, our daughter at the time was uh, in in out of the hospital and we didn't know if she was gonna live or she was gonna die from week to week in fact that first two and a half years of her life uh, she was almost every week in the hospital for something she was in congestive heart failure and as a result her lungs were always filled with filled with fluid and as a result there was always some type of bacteria whether it was some type of pneumonia or RSV or some other thing that would settle in in the lungs and cause her to get sick and she was in and out of the hospital all the time probably almost died on us half a dozen maybe six seven eight times in that first two and a half years went through a couple heart surgeries and such and and so it was a difficult time for us and 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 the leasing lady knew about that and, and her husband knew about that as well and 
He said to me, he said he was a Christian. He said, brother, how, how's your daughter doing? I said, well, she's in the hospital right now and she's dealing with uh, uh, this right now and, and uh, hopefully she'll get out here soon. And my wife is there even today. That's why I'm here paying the rent instead of her. And if you wouldn't have to be dealing with this. And I'm a pretty meek guy normally. This guy was way bigger than me. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, you know, it's true. God does allow things to happen in our lives at times as a judgment for sin. But the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth as a father does his own children. And I said, and when he does it, he usually lets that person know. And I said, he hasn't let me know. And surely he's not letting me know through you. And I went on my way. You ever say something silly, well-intended to somebody to try to encourage them? Now, here are several things we need to stop saying as Christians. Okay, number one, we need to stop saying God won't give you any more than you can handle. We need to stop saying that. Why? Because he does. He does. That's the whole reason he does. Because we can't handle it. We need him. Desperately. And we need to stop saying that. I know we're well-intended. I know we're well-meaning. But it's not true. Secondly, this too shall pass. It doesn't always pass. Now, I understand we may leave this life, we may get to glory, and we're forever in the presence of Jesus, and, and it passes then. But in this life, look at Jeremiah. Last week, Jeremiah, I mean, he saw the fall of Jerusalem. He saw terrible things. He saw the temple laid waste. He saw the walls broken down. Jeremiah saw all of that. He, he went with a bunch of exiles to Egypt, and then they strangled them to death. It didn't pass for him. We need to stop saying that. Thirdly, I'll pray for you. How about this? I am praying for you and really be praying for him. Or how about this? Let me pray with you right now. Let me pray with you right now. How about this one? Don't worry, God has a plan. Now, I understand that and I understand what somebody's trying to say. God does have a plan. He's always working things together for our good and his glory. But making pithy statements and giving cliches to somebody that is desperately suffering isn't always the best thing to do. How about this one? Somebody said this to us. My wife had a couple miscarriages. God will give you another child. What? Did you just say that? Like, now? In this moment where she's been carrying a baby for almost three months and she lost it? You know, well intended, not always right. How about this one? You need to get over it. You need to get over it. 
How about you need to get under it? <laughs> How about this one? Everything happens for a reason. Again, well intended, but probably not the best thing. Or how about this one? Just let go and let God. I understand. We understand the principles that can align with that faith-wise. But again, let's be careful of making pithy statements and giving cliches while somebody's truly suffering. Now, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 36, we see Job's supposed friends unjustly judging him, accusing him, deriding him, defaming him, and we see Job answering their accusations, and eventually we see Job starting to believe their accusations. And then we find another criticism, and this criticism comes from God. By chapter 38, Job has gotten to the place where he's starting to demand answers from God. And God's silence is broken with a rebuke as God speaks to Job through a whirlwind. In other words, God really wants to get the attention of Job. And so he allows this dust devil to stir. And the Lord answers Job and says, Who is he that darkeneth counsel by wise words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Uh, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched a line upon it? God basically tells Job, I know you're suffering. Of course I do. I'm God. But who in the world are you to think you can question me? Where were you when the earth was formed? Where were you when the angels sang at the glory of creation? Where were you when the seas were put in their beds? Job, who in the world do you think you are? They say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. God hadn't forsaken Job. God was given, giving Job an opportunity to further lean upon himself. Job, up until his losses, had experienced adversity but not like this. He had experienced more blessings than anything up until his losses. He was the most prosperous man in all the land. And God was giving Job an opportunity to trust and to lean and to learn and to rest. And God does the same for us, even when it seems like he's silent. And this morning we see Job's restoration. Job was restored when he surrendered to the sovereignty of God. Now, when we think of sovereignty, it means that God causes or allows things to happen in our lives. He is in control. He can stop things if he chooses to, and he can hasten things if he so desires. Job had to get to the place where he stopped demanding answers from God, and he got to the place, he had to get to the place where he surrendered to whatever God desired for him. Job had to say, okay, though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. God, this is not my life. God, these are not my things. God, these are not my children. They're yours. And I surrender to whatever you want to do with them. Job repents of his wrong attitude towards God, surrendering to whatever God chose to do. Notice what it says in chapter 42. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
Verse 3, who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered things I understood not, things too wonderful me for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare it unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing ear, but now my eye seeth thee, and I abhor myself. I'm, I'm repentant for how I've acted towards you. And then, once Job surrendered towards the sovereignty of God, God vindicated Job. Now, God is a whole lot better of dealing with people that harm us and speak evil about us than we are. We think we got to take that into our own hands. Now, let me say this. When someone is seeking your demise or hurt, give them over to God. Give them over to God. Don't, don't pray, God, I pray that you destroy them. I pray that you make their house a dunghill and their, their car an ash heap. No, don't pray that. But pray, God, I just give this person over to you. Over our 27 years of ministry, I've had to do that twice to people that have tried to hurt and defame. And you know what? In both cases, they came back and apologized for their bad behavior and how they treated us and tried to get others to treat us as well. Give them over to God. Now look at what God did to Job's friends. Notice verse 7 of chapter 42. My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. He's speaking to Eliaphaz. For you have not spoken this thing of me that is right uh, about my servant Job. Therefore take unto you seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourself a burnt offering. My servant Job shall pray for you and for him while I accept lest I deal with you after your folly in that ye have spoken of me the thing that is not right like my servant Job. So Eliaphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Zuphorite and Zophar the Namanite went and did according as the Lord commanded and the Lord also accepted Job. How else did God restore Job? He prayed for his friends. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. When he prayed for his friends. In the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes to his followers that they're part of a, a new kingdom, a kingdom of truth, this is what he says how they're supposed to respond when people want to hurt them. Notice what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And then notice what God does. God restores Job. God blesses Job with possessions. Notice what it says, chapter 42 and verse 10. And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Notice chapter 42, verse 11 at the end there. Every man also gave him a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. Verse 12, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. And then God brought his family back into his life. It says in verse 11, then came there unto him all of his brethren, 
and all of his sisters, and all they that had been acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in the house, and they bemoaned him, and comforted him all, over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So his family that maybe stayed away for a, for a while, didn't know what to do, didn't know how to respond, or just were staying away, they came back into his life. And then God blessed him with children. Notice what it says, verse 13. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Now, the Bible says that he blessed him with twice as much as he had before. And he didn't get the ones that he lost back, but I want you to understand something. He never lost them to begin with. They were still his children. They're his children here. And they would always be. And I think God dealt with Mrs. Job by allowing her to have 10 more children. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and then notice God blessed Job with and restored Job with long life. And after this, Job uh, lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So he died being old and full of days. So not only did he get to see his children's children and his children's children's children, but his children's 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 children. Did you get that? <laughs> He got to see all of that. And then we see one last thing this morning, lessons to be learned through Job's loss. The first thing Job did when facing loss was to worship God. The first thing Job did when facing loss was to worship God. Job worships God for who he is, who he was, his character, not necessarily for the circumstances that he was facing. Notice what it says in verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle. He ripped his clothes. He shaved his head. He fell down upon the ground. And notice what the Bible says. He worshiped. He wanted to turn his eyes higher than his difficulty. He couldn't keep looking at his loss. He looked to the one who gave him everything to begin with and worshiped God for the time he had in owning things and having those children. Now, maybe God has allowed some loss into your life to bring you closer to him. Maybe today you need to be saved. And, and, and I want you to understand, God is bringing some things in your life or has brought some things in your life because he's wanting you to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's wanting to you, you to understand that there's hope. He has provided hope in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, gave himself for our sins and the sins of mankind. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, we don't have the righteousness that it takes to be saved. We need righteousness from someone else and Jesus gave it to us or at least provides it to us if we will receive it. And the moment we receive it, we're saved. We're justified. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Job worshiped God in his difficulty and we need to do the same. I was talking this week to a friend of mine about Job. The older I get, the more my people are dying. Um, one of my dearest mentors here died just a little over a year ago. 
And he was a guy I would call to get counsel from, a guy that I would call and get encouragement from, and he's gone. Another friend of mine who I've done that over the last several years, his name's Ken, he just found out he's now got cancer not only in his lower spine but up in his upper spine. And he's in the best place to get treatment at the Cleveland Clinic there in Ohio. But unless the Lord intervenes, he's probably going to, to leave this world probably pretty soon. So as I was talking to him this week about Job and suffering, he said to me, he said, you know, Adam, one of the hardest things I have to do is what James tells us. He said, it's really hard to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He says, it's really hard to be joyous in the midst of suffering. And I can understand. But he said, nonetheless, we have to put our eyes above our difficulty and put them towards the one who gave us anything to begin with. Job worshiped God. Secondly, we must hold the things of this world with open hands. Notice Job's response after having experienced the loss of most of his possessions and his children. Verse 21 of ch chapter 1. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, in James, the Bible tells us that all flesh is like the grass or the flower of the field. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. And we understand life can be that way. We're not guaranteed health. We're not guaranteed wealth. We're not guaranteed happiness and success, contrary to what the television preacher will tell you. Sometimes our life is are described as what Job says in Job 14. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Sometimes the stark market, stock market falls. Amen? Sometimes the real estate market crashes. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we face a natural disaster. Sometimes we're involved in a terrible car accident. Sometimes our bodies fail. And so we must hold the things of this world with open hands. The Lord brings us naked into this world, and naked we shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thirdly, we must learn to take the good with the bad in life. After, Job's, after Job loses his health and is afflicted with boils, his wife gives this response. She says, Do you still retain your integrity towards God? Just curse God and die. And then Job responds to her in verse 10, What? Shall we receive the good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive the evil? Job, in essence, says, You didn't complain when God gave us way too much in the way of possessions. Why are you complaining now when it's gone? Now, everyone, saved and unsaved, experiences seasons in life. 
In fact, Solomon talked about this in Ecclesiastes. He said, to everything there's a season and time to every purpose under heaven. He says, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And then in verse 11, he sums it up and says this, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. God has an appointment, a time for everything. And then it says, he also hath set the world. That word translated is from a word that we would get eternity. He hath set eternity in our hearts. So God allows us to go through the seasons of life to understand that this world isn't all there is, that there's something beyond this world, and there's a drive to understand something hopeful beyond this world. Why? Because we all endure the seasons of life, and we're not to be looking solely at this world. We're to be looking towards the next. We all experience the seasons of life. And then, fourthly, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those that weep. From all we can tell about Job's friends, their initial intentions were sincere and sound. We find them in chapter 2, verse 11. They made an appointment to come together and mourn with him and to comfort him. Verse 12, they lifted up their voice and they wept and they rent their clothes and they sprinkled dust upon their heads and they were clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And verse 13, chapter 2, they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. They didn't say anything because Job was heavy in grief. And here's what God is, admonishes us to do as his, with his children. He says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. When your friends experience the blessings of God, don't envy them. Rejoice with them. Rejoice with them. And when our friends endure hardship and suffering, weep with them. Another principle we learn from Job, it's okay to be human. Chapter 3, we see Job uh, expressing his trauma of loss. Uh, he wished he had never been born. He was simply a guy. He was simply human. And God understands our humanness. In fact, the Bible says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame and remembereth that we are but dust. Number next, don't assume because God's people have problems in their life. It is because of God's judgment. God does judge his children. But if he does, as Hebrews 12 describes, he does it as a loving father who desires the best for his children. And it's not our responsibility to alert people of God's judgment. It is God's responsibility. Next, we cannot view God as small. Prior to God's questioning of Job, Job's perception of God is wrong. It's too tame. It's too domesticated. It's too presumptuous. God questions uh, uh, Job here in chapter 40. It underscores the fact that God is trustworthy and wise and sovereign and just and good. God is not someone whom Job could drag into court so that he could argue the case before an impartial judge. God is without peer. He himself is the judge, the jury, and the standard of justice. And that's why we find in Job 40, verse 2, so 
Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He reproveth God. Let him answer it. Now, who do we think we are sometimes to demand? God. To do what we want him to do. Who put the big G on our shirt? And then one last thing we learn from Job. We cannot view ourselves too large. Job's response to God when he realized what he's done is he says, I'm vile. What shall I answer thee? And here's where you get the expression, you put your hand upon your mouth. I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Chapter 42, who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered things I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Job said, okay, I have, I have put myself in a position I never thought I would have. I understand, God, you're God. I cannot command you. I cannot demand of you. God, you do as you please. God, I need to surrender to your will, and I need to continue to trust we cannot be too big for our own britches. So this morning, I ask you, are you dealing with the fire of loss? What have you lost? Have you lost relationships? Have you lost your people? People that are dear to you? Have you lost a job? Have you lost self-respect? Have you lost your sanity of mind? Let me ask you, how are you responding to it? Well, I believe God has given us some answers this morning from the life of Job. And maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Today would be just as great a day as any to make sure that takes place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your